But in terms of actual efficient delivery of knowledge that we're going to retain, the evidence seems to be that microlearning is actually better for the modern brain or seems to be better received and better remembered. CE Learning. Everybody's got to do it. Could it be better? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VEDEX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I am your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today our educational thinker is Dr. Liz Barton, head of communications at VetCT, a company that provides teleradiology, teleconsulting, but also education. Because the way Barton sees it, and the veterinarian-founded company lives it, sometimes you're in a rush and you just need the answer. But in other cases, wouldn't you like to learn something? So VetCT got Barton working on a white paper on the topic. How could they improve telelearning? So Liz, what was your education like before you started on this paper? What experience did you bring? I uh, started, you know, going through school, obviously being quite a high achiever, and then got to vet school and um, just found the, the sheer academic sort of intelligence required quite mind-blowing you know the pass rate being 50% and you know you're not used to getting you know 50% of what you were supposed to learn wrong when you're at school and you're getting sort of 90% so so just the sheer volume of knowledge and a lot of it not necessarily applicable obviously the preclinical years are quite pure science based but even in the clinical years you're not necessarily going to use a lot of what you're taught or certainly not you know within the first few months of learning it and then it becomes either stale, hard to recall, or, you know, potentially even outdated. So I just found that kind of constant, almost barrage of information delivered in lecture format was not particularly useful for knowledge acquisition and retention in a way that was clinically applicable. Though I appreciate it's a very efficient way of transference of knowledge from the one to the to the many. <laughs> I think we could talk about the effectiveness of it then, because it seems like an efficient way. You have the person who knows the thing and they stand there and they tell everyone else, it could be as large or as small a group as you want, but every single other person there, they tell them what they know and therefore education or learning has happened. So maybe if we look at that as the, we call it, that happens everywhere. It happens now, today in clinics, it happens in schools and universities, it happens in the workplace, it happens everywhere that uh, the smart person stands up and says the smart things and the people are supposed to remember it. I don't know if that's happening. So maybe we could just start there. There's the model. Is that the model that when you went looking at all the different possible education models and kind of surveyed the field that that is it effective? Should it be the dominant thing? Is it still useful? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you look back at history, you know, knowledge was first passed down by observational learning of people doing things but also the telling of stories and you can sort of say that that you know lecturing is the telling of educational stories on a large scale so maybe we are wired to do that but if you actually look at you know if you think about the fact that you're learning out of context you're not necessarily learning in a social environment if you're particularly if it's online online lecturing or if even if you're learning within a group if there's no actual social interaction going on you know, there's only a very small proportion of your brain that's being activated, you know, your hearing and your vision. And I mean, I'll quote some sort of statistics, etc. as we go through this. 
And the references for all of these can be found on the real-time learning paper, which is, is freely downloadable. But traditional learning methods are only thought to actually result in about 20% of knowledge retention. Whereas you look at kind of more modern learning methods, so something like micro learning, which we can come on to talk about, and that kind of bite-sized learning, you actually get up to 65% of knowledge retention. There's actually been not a huge amount of data collected. There's been an awful lot of learning theories, which again are sort of summarised, but you know, it, the researchers that have looked at this have talked a lot about things like learning by doing. So therefore you're using a more sensory, uh, you know, touch and other senses in addition to just hearing and sort of passive acquisition of knowledge. You're actually learning by being engaged in it, by doing it in a social environment, by reflecting on it as well. And, you know, by problem solving. So all of these other kind of methods of learning, uh, much more experiential and, and active learning, involve more parts of the brain and therefore are going to create more connections because you're you're using more than just the sort of passive acquisition senses in that way. Can I ask, because you and I both had our stretches, we've been through lots of lecturing through our school years. When you noticed, when we were talking about the effectiveness of that model, did you notice that in school? Like, did you kind of look around and say, I can't figure out how to hang this in the web of my learning? Or was it kind of a thing you graduated and realized, what the heck did I have to spend X number of weeks on that when I'm never going to do it? And they didn't teach me anything about this. So was it sort of post-school thing or in school? You're like, wow, this is a lot to absorb. And do I actually need all this? Yeah, I was really fortunate in that I found a fantastic uh, mixed practice in the Lake District, which is a beautiful part of the UK, to actually do a lot of my EMS, so my extramural studies seeing practice, you know, actually getting that practical experience with, with a working practice. And they actually offered me a job before I graduated and I completely shifted the way that I learnt. They offered me the job six months before our final exams and I stopped revising as an academic in order to pass exams and I actually started creating for myself little crib books and crib sheets and, and learning for what I knew I would need. I was more concerned about doing a good job for my bosses who I wanted to impress than I was about <laughs> passing my finals and it was a very different mentality. It was a very different learning mechanism. And it was a very different way of, of trying to assimilate the knowledge that had largely been delivered in lecture format. But I thought about it completely differently. And the way that I went about learning it was, was very different because it was much more about visualizing myself in that space. What do I need to know when I turn up on the farm and all the calves have got diarrhea, <laughs> you know, rather than, well, here's the lecture on calf diarrhea. Let me try and memorize the differentials, you know. That's really interesting. You know, you mentioned that sort of there's data that's sort of spread around this white paper. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I think here we're saying, hey, on the job training, absolutely wonderful. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's the thing we're all supposed to be doing. The Whatever constitutes the on the job training. But then you did this sort of comparison of a model of learning from the 1980s and a model of learning from the 2000s. It was interesting to see the job related go from 55% of the learning and development pie from 70% to 55%. So I don't know if we could talk specifically about that. It's on page eight, but I was curious about that. What are your thoughts on that shift in the model? Because I thought job related, isn't that the ideal? I mean, as we're talking about, you're actually putting into practice, it's connected to all the people around you. But the one thing that got a boost in there was educational events. And I hear sort of educational events kind of 
in some ways get a bad rap, that they use the old-fashioned lecture model. So maybe you just talk a little bit about how that model might have changed between those ensuing 20 or 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. So we're talking about the model for learning and development, which in the in the 1980s, when it was initially theorized, um, as you say, 70% was thought to come from job-related learning versus 10% from educational events and 20% from interactions. But obviously, this was before the internet was a thing. So therefore, educational events required you to go somewhere and be lectured to. Um, right. So there was a lot less capacity for online events. And when it was revised in the 2000s, obviously, online learning, internet-based teaching. And in fact, the internet itself also plays into that sort of educational events piece and also the interactions. So online and social media interactions, web interactions, as well as specifically learning on the job, I think largely accounts for a lot of that shift. Because if you think about the way we consume social media and the way we consume online content, it is democratized, self-led, bite-sized micro-learning a lot of the time. You know, we're, yeah. we're used to reading three to five-minute articles. It's amazing how many articles now have a nine-minute read, three-minute read, five-minute read, you know, yeah. as like the hook to, oh, that's only five minutes, I'll read that. Oh, that's 12, I'm not going to go there, you know. <laughs> so I think probably that shift away from job-related learning, and these are just theories, you know, there was no kind of hard data to back it up. This was just kind of theories about about how people acquired knowledge in the workplace. So I think, you know, whilst learning on the job is very powerful in many ways, there's less of a proportion of it because there are other ways of delivering information. Looking at those three parts of the pie, the on-the-job learning, the, what you call it, sort of the social, interactions. Yeah, interactions, yeah. yeah. And then the educational events, whether that's an actual event where you have to be butt in the seat in a location or whether you can do that online in some way. How much of that matches up? You have some recommendations later on, and there's a long list of them. I feel like we could go through each one, but I'm curious about whether you've mentioned micro learning and I just want to, so I'll just play the devil's advocate. One thing about the micro learning thing. So thinking about people taking those things smaller, there's an argument out there that the attention spans are getting shorter. And some people sort of descriptively say, well, attention spans are getting shorter. So that means you have to give people less to read at once and they have less time. Everyone's busier, they have less time. And of course, the other side, the prescriptive is, well, that's also their own doing. They are running their attention span shorter and shorter because of the sort of behavior they engage in, whether that's keeping themselves busy where they don't need to be, giving themselves stretches where they can sort of process information. So as you, one of the recommendations that are kind of made in this white paper, that shorter micro learning is good, is there any pushback that, well, but it's also superficial, it doesn't stick in because you're not dwelling with it long enough? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple of points there. And it's interesting how you talk about, you know, the flip side of our attention spans actually getting shorter, or are people just more used to having shorter pieces of content delivered to them? Yeah. And I think the data actually backs up the latter, that actually, if we want to pay attention to something, if we're engaged in something, you know, we can sit there and watch a Netflix series that we're engaged in and binge watch it for hours and be totally absorbed and utterly attentive, reading a good book that we get really stuck into. I think that where the shift comes is not necessarily that our attention spans have decreased. It's just the way we're used to consuming information has become more bite-sized and we are 
more geared up to and more used to receiving smaller snapshot content because of, as I say, social media and website. And our brains are now receiving so much information. I mean, there's, again, you know, the white paper sort of alludes to this, but there are sort of theories that knowledge is doubling at rates that we couldn't have dreamed of, you know, just a few decades ago. And there is so much more knowledge out there. We're almost being bombarded with it. And I think that kind of micro learning, that short snapshot content is a way of getting a nugget of information that you really need to apply to that without having too much additional noise around you. For sure, if it's a topic that you want to delve into more deeply, then absolutely kind of uh, building additional knowledge and having that time and space and awareness to sit down and, and properly pay attention to it is you know, maybe more appropriate for certain things. But in terms of actual efficient delivery of knowledge that we're going to retain, the evidence seems to be that micro learning is actually better for the modern brain or seems to be better received and better remembered. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. The other thing about, you mentioned, you know, people sitting for long spans of time, you know, you settle in with a good book and that feels like that's recreation, that's personal time. You settle into hours and binge watch a TV show, sort of recreation, personal time. And then this other education stuff, I think it's exciting on and off for people who have to learn a lot. Some people love learning all the time. Other times people get burned out on it and they just want to do the practice of what they're doing. How much do goals fit into this education? We're talking about either learning long spans, which sounds like, oh, I don't want to do that. I'm not interested enough. So just give me the bite size, which implies that, well, then this isn't really a goal for you. This is a little tiny thing or you're not that interested. So you just kind of want to do it and get it over with and move on. Whereas that sort of more leisurely, oh, I love learning about something. I do it for hours. Where do specific goals about what this education is for the learner? How does that enter into this? So I think the fact that there is so much more universal access to information through various CE websites, through the internet itself, through different forms of learning and education means that people can pick and choose much more content suited to the goals, their own individual learning targets and goals or clinical development targets and goals. And I know something that's being talked about more and more is this micro accreditation where over time, you accrue, you know, small amounts of points that kind of build into larger certificates and a, a bigger picture, extra qualifications, etc. And I think, again, 
going back to the fact that, you know, modern society, etc., we're used to snapshot content and people sort of checking their phones regularly and their social media, getting those little dopamine hits quite regularly yes. for the number of likes and shares and all the rest of it. Also giving people those little dopamine hits of, you know, you only, might have only done, you know, five minutes of learning then five minutes of reflection and bing, you know, you get three points or whatever. And seeing those <laughs> right. build up over time and actually having that ability to, to micro-accredit and build learning. But even, you know, life is so busy. And if you haven't got time to sit down, goodness knows how many lectures, countless lectures I've signed up for that have been hour-long webinars. And I have a stack of them that I've never watched back because I simply have not had the time to do so. Whereas if it's much shorter, then you can do, you know, 10 minutes in your tea break or you know, maybe two or three short learning things in the evening, reflect on them and still get some form of working towards an accreditation. I think that's a lot more manageable in, in modern day life. What about the curmudgeonly attitude that, so forget curmudgeon, the practical thing is, you know, we, we talked about these formal education. And so that's happening. As you mentioned, that can happen in apps, that can happen listening to audio, that can happen watching on video. It can be made as small as short or as long as they want inside that online environment. But then when you show up to an event, you could get the feeling people did want to learn, but people are so busy. And so when they go to this educational event, it's hard for them to kind of be on for that whole thing. It's a bit like going to school when you're not going to get a grade. It's like pass or fail. As you mentioned, high achievers, they want to achieve something at the end. And so the nobody sort of sets up the thing that says, Here's a certificate that will tell everyone you're amazing. You just get the the box check. Yep, we will check your box that you sat here for any number of days, any number of hours. Whether you learned anything, who knows? No one knows. There's no check on that. I think what you're talking about is adding in some kind, I don't, not just making it smaller, but is there something that's lacking? You did mention taking these micro things and add them up into a credential. Does that help people kind of feel like they have a stronger goal to motivate them? Because I feel like a lot of times, People are just kind of checking off the box for CE, and um, it's understandable. But then learning, which should be this thing they really loved, it turned out to be, oh, it's just another distraction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll let you into a little secret. I actually had to stop going to sort of formal lectures at events because I kept falling asleep in them, and I'd keep like <laughs> dropping the dropping the program on the floor and sort of clattering my pen around. And, <laughs> Because I cannot stay awake in a lecture. I think it must be something pathological from when I was at vet school and I just got lectured to the point that my brain won't accept that that kind of delivery of knowledge anymore. But I mean, absolutely. I think the huge value in those kind of in-person events is actually the networking and the richness you get from the human interaction and the kind of discussion between people, particularly sort of post-COVID yeah. I think, you know, we've missed out on just seeing each other and, and catching up. So I still think there's a huge place for those kind of in-person events. The ones that really grab me and the sessions that I do still go to, be they clinical or non-clinical, are the ones with some sort of interactive element. So, you know, we've had workshops recently at some of the clinical streams where, you know, you actually have actors on stage and the audience gets to sort of decide what the next interaction looks like. And those... Mm -hmm. You know, you really, re I really remember and I really interact with those better. But, you know, I think kind of sitting there and, and being lectured at is a really hard, unless it's a case that you've seen recently, one that you've got coming up, something that is right at the forefront of your mind, something you've always wanted to know about. 
even then after 20 minutes the human brain has kind of had enough and needs a break so <laughs> the hour-long lecture format I don't think is um, is particularly helpful for the majority and it's interesting because I think there is a lot of information out there about how not just overall human beings learn but about how adults learning and about, again about the fact that even adults the most brilliant adults only have X number of minutes before their brain has to get off whatever track they're on and be distracted. So it's guaranteed after every stretch of time, whether the research says it's long, 15 minutes or short, five, seven minutes, it means people are not always paying attention, but you're rolling through with no break. We just know that the adult brain doesn't operate without these breaks. Yeah. And yet very seldom are these breaks actually put in. Maybe the person who's lecturing is fully engaged and so they forget that all the people out there are not active. They're sort of inactive, sitting there passively. And I see a lot, I think what you're talking about are those things we know about how we think and learn and how our brains work that maybe aren't being recognized in the models. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, if if through that sort of traditional method, only 20% of the knowledge is being conveyed, I know that these, you know, experts who are speaking just have so much, you know, really fascinating and vital and important information to convey but if they thought about only one in five of their slides actually being remembered, you know, it's kind of <laughs> which are the ones that you really need to get across. And, and, you know, that really makes you that really kind of flips it on its head. Well, you know, rather than trying to convey everything, how can I provide those breaks, provide those assimilation points, get people to, you know, get more towards the kind of 65 percent of, of knowledge retention rather than, yeah. you know, the, the sort of lower, lower levels. I absolutely think it's a challenge and, you know, there, there will always be a place for for lecturing, for kind of transmitting knowledge to the many in that way. But it's then, you know, how do we back that up with more kind of active learning, more reflective learning, more job-based learning so that that actually becomes effective embedded knowledge that we can, you know, actually put into practice rather than something that we, we made notes on and you know, when we see a case sort of five years later, we have to trawl back through our notes and oh, I'm sure I learned something about that at the, the conference. You know? <laughs> right. You go trolling through notes or trolling through the proceedings or some textbook that you've held on to for 15 years. Like, I think there was a picture in there about that. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Which is not necessarily a very efficient way of then accessing that knowledge again. You know, and this is where the kind of point of care curated up-to-date information is just so valuable in terms of you know delivering that that knowledge to people it may be a refresher of something they've heard before or it may be that you know the medicine has moved on from you know the lecture that was even six months ago or 12 months ago whatever it was when we when we were sort of there and made those notes but you know making sure that we can actually not just go and and receive information but that we can access it effectively at the point of need i think is key well so that's interesting because now i want to ask you at the risk of wandering into sort of promotional or self-promotional grounds this is out of the company vet ct and you just said the point of care that case point every time a pet owner plus a, a general practice veterinarian plus someone who's helping with diagnostics or a treatment plan, the expert in an off-site thing like VetCT, that is, seems like a perfect chance to educate how has the kinds of things that were talked about in this white paper, how have those things sort of infused any approaches at VetCT about how the people who work at VetCT interact with the veterinarians and that learning, not just managing that individual case, is a possibility? Yeah, I mean, VetCT is always, we're, we're veterinary owned and, and led and 
education has always been one of our core sort of pillars, not just in terms of, you know, supporting education within universities through student teaching, but actually, you know, running as a consistent theme in all of our outputs. So, you know, we're sort of known historically um, because we're founded by radiologists. Historically, we've we've been a teleradiology company and, and what sort of the point of difference really is how educational the reports are. They are designed to really take the clinician on a journey to understand, you know, the kind of conclusions at the end rather than saying, you know, it could be this, this or this. It's like, this is why it could be yeah. <laughs> um, X, Y or Z. So, you know, sort of with annotation, etc. And then the second service, you know, the kind of specialist to vet teleconsulting service, you know, actually yeah. provides that opportunity to interact with the clinician after initial reports have been sort of produced to discuss the case backwards and forwards. The nice thing about that is, you know, the specialists are are up to date in their own field and they can provide you with that kind of curated um, knowledge and information. And and also if there's, you know, the, the sort of classic thing like the the, the fitting dog with liver disease and diabetes, you know, why is it fitting? <laughs> Has it got a separate neurological disorder or is it fitting as a result yeah. of metabolic problems? And actually being able to get kind of input. There's very few lectures that will actually deal with that case, you know, that has multiple problems. So actually being able to have input from sort of multidisciplinary, multi-specialist advice into a case is a great opportunity to learn not just about a kind of linear, you know, presentation, diagnosis, treatment, prognosis. Life's rarely like that. It tends to be a lot more messy (laughs) clinically, biologically, and actually addressing and and helping people through that kind of diagnostic process, um, then, you know, through to the, the treatment and prognosis, how to communicate that with the owner you know, all of that provides a lot more opportunity to kind of reflect on the case, to think about, you know, how you communicate it to the owner, how you communicate it to your colleagues, how you're discussing it backwards and forwards with the specialist. And all of these feed into a really nice active learning process, which is, you know, that kind of really deep understanding that then embeds that knowledge because it's, uh, you know, again, activating a lot more of the brain rather than just simply as I say, the kind of linear way that we're, we're taught a lot of the time. So your experts, if your experts and kind of the philosophical model behind VetCT is, is hungry to teach, do you always find that the incredibly harried, busy people on the other end of the email or the under end of the app or the other end of the phone line, those people always have the time or the inclination to want to walk through, not just man, I just, I, we need a second opinion on this or we need this and that's all we need. So give me the three things and I want to walk away. Or usually does it seem like either you're known for it or the people are hungry for it? In other words, do your specialists always have a chance to teach or do they sometimes find that the people out there, they just need the answer and they need to move on? Yeah. And there are plenty of times where, gosh, you you need the answer because if not, something's (laughs) going to die and you haven't got time to sit there and, oh, I'll just reflect about why it needs a blood transfusion while it's, you know, dying in front (laughs) of you. So the idea is that, you know, we can provide that kind of just get to the bottom, you know, like when you read a scientific paper, abstract conclusion, you know, (laughs) rather than delving into the, (laughs) the kind of nuts and bolts of it. So there absolutely is that ability to literally just read the bottom line and get on with what you need to do. However, the idea is that, you know, with the case of open for a couple of weeks, you can then 
reflect on it later or if it comes back in, what's the next step? So you can then when, you know, the immediate urgency and rush has died down, there is the opportunity, if you would like to learn from the case, to actually spend a bit more time thinking about it, to delve into it a bit deeper, to ask a few more questions. And in addition, we're kind of building out associated learning content modules, um, which will be sort of short 15 minute video based content with a reflective learning piece built into that so -hmm. that people can you know, once that immediacy has gone, oh, actually, yeah, why did I do that for the blood transfusion? Let me go back and look at the the learning piece and, you know, um, hopefully get some CE credits. You know, we're looking at CE accreditation for these little sort of bite-sized or, you know, shorter video content that then, you know, you, again, this is the sort of democratization of learning, self-directed goals. Do you want to learn more? Because there's the opportunity to, if you would like to, but you know, at the same time, I completely appreciate there are times you just need the answer and to get on with the rest of your day. Want to read the white paper? Email Liz at liz.barton at vet-ct.com. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.